Amen. Well, church, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And today we're going to be in verses 3 through 8. Here at the Field Church, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And that means all the verses. We don't skip any, no matter how insignificant they may seem or how tough they may be to hear. We preach all of them. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And let's read those together. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses, transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know, God's word clearly explains man's condition. Genesis chapter six, verse five says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans chapter three, 10 through 12 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And just one more, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is by no means an exhaustive list of what God teaches about man. But one of the ways that we see man's total depravity on full display is through the sexual immorality that runs rampant in our society and in the whole world. Think about the rampant consumption of pornography, the commonality of premarital sex. 50% of divorces are caused by extramarital affairs. And then there's homosexuality. We just finished a month that's dedicated to celebrating and promoting sexual immorality. Sexual immorality has become so common that the world now places sexuality on a spectrum. The world can no longer define what a man or a woman is anymore. And if that's not a statement about where we are as a society, I mean, I don't know what is. So allow me to simplify all of this and the rest of the sexual immorality that goes on in our society. It's sin. It's sexual immorality. It's an abomination to God. And as sexually perverse as our society is, it's no worse or better than that of first century Thessalonica. When the apostle Paul penned the very words that encompass the section of scripture that we're looking at today, as it says in Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse nine, 
what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. You see, first century Thessalonica was a sexually permissive society, much like our own. A man might have a wife to take care of his home and raise his legitimate children, a concubine to satisfy his momentary daily urges, a mistress who is a close friend or someone that he could enjoy his company in addition to being his lover. And then there were temple prostitutes who were there to help engage in worship of the false gods of the Greco-Roman society through sexual acts. It was also suitable for a man during this time to have a boyfriend who was commonly in his early teens. And Thessalonica, being a port city, would have surely had the influence of many different cultures, each importing its own brand of sexual immorality into the city. Transvestites would have also been common during this time. The point being made here is that sexual sin was just as common in Thessalonica as it is here and now. And this is the environment, this is the world in which the newly Thessalonian church existed. And I wanted you to understand all this because you may have been asking yourself why Paul is moving in our text today from the more broad idea of striving and excelling and becoming more Christ-like, what we would sometimes call progressive sanctification, to focusing on this particular topic, if you will, within progressive sanctification. So what we see in our text today isn't a random topic that Paul wants to bring up with the Thessalonian church. Paul is actually making a decision here on the best way to shepherd God's flock in Thessalonica. He's being a good pastor and he's feeding the sheep what will give them the most nourishment. He sees a group of new believers seeking to glorify God with their lives in the midst of a sex-crazed society. Let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. Does that sound familiar? Is that something that you can relate to? Many of these Thessalonian believers were probably engaged in daily sex acts, um, sexual immorality of all types, just months earlier when they encountered Paul and heard him preach the gospel. This might have been the life that many of them grew up in. Sexual immorality is a way of life for the pagans of this time and still to this day. And we need to remember that 1 Thessalonians is a letter of encouragement and exhortation. So what's in our text today is an exhortation, not a rebuke. And what we see is an exhortation to avoid sexual sin because that is what this flock at Thessalonica needs. This is a call to sexual purity. Paul is going to explain to the church at Thessalonica how to glorify God by maintaining sexual purity. So the title of today's message is Precepts for Perseverance and Purity. And Paul is explaining to the church at Thessalonica how to honor God with their sexuality. And church, we have to be careful. We can't forget that sexual intimacy is, a fa- in fact, a gift from God. But God has defined a very narrow way in which we can use this gift. And we have to get this right, church. We seek to glorify God in all aspects of our lives. Yes? Yeah. So what about in our sexual behavior? Have you ever considered how to glorify God in that way? So we need to know this so that we can glorify God. And parents, you definitely need to be clear on this because If you don't teach your children God's standard 
for sexual purity, I can promise you the world will teach them its standard for sexual purity. And we'll see God's precepts for perseverance and purity in three parts today. First, we'll see God's will for purity in verse three. And this is where Paul will establish God's standard or what we call his will for purity. And this will answer the question for us, what is sexual purity? Second, we'll see the ways to maintain sexual purity in verses four through 6a. And Paul's gonna give us instruction on how to persevere in purity. And there's gonna be three of these, so you may want to leave room for subpoints. And this will help, help us answer, the, uh, answer how to stay sexually pure. And third, we'll see the warning for ignoring sexual purity in verses 6b through 8. And this will show why it's so important that we give our obedience in this matter of purity. And there will be three of these as well. So this is answering the question, why is sexual purity necessary? So your headings today are wills, will, ways, and warnings. So let's go ahead and move to verse three now, where we'll see God's will for sexual purity. And verse three says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The will of God is your sanctification. The will of God is that you become more like Christ. This is progressive sanctification. And I won't belabor the point today since Pastor Sam taught, about, taught us about it last week, but I do want you to remember the main points. Progressive sanctification is a lifelong process. As your life goes on year by year until the day you die, you will become more and more like Jesus, or you should become more and more like Jesus. This is the process of becoming holy. This process never stops while you are still joined to your flesh. You will fight sin day in and day out until you meet the Lord. Progressive sanctification requires your effort. You have to fight. You have to constantly be putting your sin to death. Whereas salvation is monergistic, meaning God does all the work in the process of electing us, calling us to himself, regenerating us, declaring us righteous, and adopting us. Progressive sanctification is synergistic. In other words, we also play a role in it. We work with God and God works in us through his Holy Spirit to mold us into the image of Christ. And to be clear, most of this work is still done by God. But our will and our effort does contribute to it. For us, as God's children, this is the hard part. It involves effort. It involves struggle. It involves obedience. It's warfare. It includes suffering and chastening. And it's by no means easy. This is the process of God moving you from where you are to holiness. So God's will is that you will become holy, that you will become like his Christ. And holiness includes all aspects of the Christian's life. As I said earlier, Paul is choosing to specifically write about sexual immorality. Um, and this choice was for the purpose of shepherding the flock at Thessalonica well. And let us not forget that Paul's writing here uh, in this first epistle to the, to the Thessalonians is inspired writing. So the Holy Spirit is carrying Paul along as he writes this according to 2 Peter verse 1, 20 and 21, and chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Again, personal holiness is not limited to your sexual behavior, but that is the focus and the context of our section of Scripture today. 
As the rest of verse 3 says, God's will for our sanctification is that we will abstain from sexual immorality. Now, the word used for sexual immorality here in Greek is pornia. And it's from this word that the word pornography originates. The usage of this word by the New Testament writers is very broad. It encompasses all forms of sexual impropriety. And that includes in the context of being single or being married. So Paul is saying to abstain, avoid, decline committing sexual sin. And this is a remarkably simple concept. We're the ones who make this complicated. Brothers, sisters, your relationship status before your God is either single or married. There's no it's complicated with God. What verse three is calling us to practice is biblical sexuality. So the question becomes, well, how do we define biblical sexuality? And I'm gonna give you three principles, and there will be a slide up here. Uh, do we have that slide with the three principles so that you can jot them down or take a picture of them, whichever works better for you. And as we explore these three principles, it's going to help us define exactly what pornia means and help us to understand the overall meaning of verse three. So let's talk about the principles of biblical sexuality. There's three of them. Principle one, sexual activity is to be between a man and a woman. Genesis chapter two, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. The Hebrew words used for man and wife specifically refer to male and female adults, a man and a woman. Through their marriage, they become one flesh. Now, this process of becoming one flesh it includes, but is not limited to, sexual intimacy. Now let's talk about principle two. Sexual activity is to happen after marriage. And this is supported by Genesis uh, 2, 24 and 25, and also Hebrews 13, 4. So we just read Genesis, so let's, let's read Hebrews. It says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So the sexually immoral and adulterous, according to Hebrews 13, four here, are outside of the marriage. This means that there's no sexual activity before marriage. Now let's look at principle three. Sexual activity is for the mutual gratification between legitimate marriage partners. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 say, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except, for, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So a husband and a wife are there for each other. And notice that Paul is writing here that this should be done out of love. This is not for the gratification of themselves, which it would be unloving. 
And just by way of reminder, we can't forget this church. All of these principles are to be kept within your heart as well. Your thoughts and your desires can be sexually immoral. Matthew chapter five, verses 27 and 28, this is the Lord speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. One more, Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And let's look at verses four through six and nine. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse four. And again, this is the Lord speaking. He says, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And jump down to verse nine. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And the context of this right here in Matthew chapter 19 is that of speaking on divorce, but I wanted you to see this, see that the Lord is teaching these three principles right here. Progressive Christians and others will often argue that Jesus never forbids things like homosexuality, but he is right here in teaching these three principles that we just talked about. So I want you to be able to lovingly correct them when they make those kinds of false statements. God's word is consistent throughout scripture. It does not change. Now, through these principles and these scriptures that we just went over, we can derive what constitutes sexual immorality by what is forbidden through the principles. All right? And remember that the command is to abstain from sexual immorality. So we can see through these principles that sexual immorality includes bestiality, homosexuality, and pedophilia, all forbidden by principle one, adultery, extramarital affairs, and premarital sex, forbidden by principle two, adultery, extramarital affairs, incest, and masturbation, forbidden by principle three, immoral desires and thoughts, lust, and pornography, forbidden by Matthew chapter five, verses 27 and 28. And this list is not exhaustive, but I think it helps us to understand just how much of the things that man do with his sexual behavior are considered sexual immorality and just how immoral man can be in his sexual behavior. So verse three is commanding us to stay away from these things. Church holiness and sexual immorality are mutually exclusive. Leviticus 19 chapter two says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. First Peter 
chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, with the will of God concerning their, uh, their purity being stated, Paul now moves to explain how purity can be maintained, how it will be maintained. And we're going to move on now to our second point. So let's look at verses four through 6a, where we'll see the ways to maintain sexual purity. So going back to 1 Thessalonians now, and we're gonna start in verse four. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. In these verses, Paul is going to offer the Thessalonian believers three methods that will keep them on the path of sexual purity. And we see the first one in verse four. The first way to maintain sexual purity is to exercise self-control. This verse starts out that each one would know how to control his own body. And the ESV does a great job of translating this verse to make the meaning clear. The Greek word used for know connotes uh, possessing knowledge or skill necessary to achieve a desired goal. So what's being said here in is the Thessalonian believers need to have the knowledge of how to control their bodies. Plainly, this means that you need to know what causes you to sin. You need to know your weaknesses, the stimulants that lead you to transgress God's word. We can't just go through life saying, oops, I sinned again. Hope that doesn't happen again. No, we have to know our tendencies. And knowing this will help you be successful at controlling or having mastery over your body. You have to learn to deny yourself. And this is the central idea of being a disciple of Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26 say, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Turn with me to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five. And let's look at verses 15 through 24. Let's read that together. So Galatians chapter five, starting in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh 
are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed, for those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and here it is, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the implication here is pretty obvious. You must control your body. Your body cannot be allowed to control you. And how should we control our body? Well, it says, in holiness and honor. Holiness means in sanctification. In other words, set apart and separated from sin. Honor, meaning worthy of respect. And honor could be considered the result of sanctification or the result of holiness. So I want to ask you this. Is self-control a fruit that you are currently producing in your life? Let's move on to verse five in our passage today in 1 Thessalonians. Let's go to verse five. It says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So verse four gave us the positive way of maintaining purity. Do this, have self-control. Verse five is going to present us with maintaining purity in a negative sense, don't do this. And what is that? Do not act like an unbeliever. This is the second way to maintain purity. That's pretty simple advice, right? Don't act like an unbeliever. Well, how do unbelievers act? Colossians chapter three, verses five through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Ephesians chapter two, verses one through six. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, with, uh, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One more, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 
Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So what are we seeing in all these passages here in Colossians, Ephesians, and 1 Corinthians? Sure, they're telling us how unbelievers act. They're also making a valid point that we all once lived in this way. So we know how unbelievers act because we used to be one. But what they're really getting at is that unbelievers don't have God. They don't know God. Like it says in verse five, the unbelievers are slaves to their sins. But you know Christ. And you're a slave to him. And brothers and sisters, Christ is a far better master than sin. Turn with me to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. And read with me verses 16 through 23. Verses 16 through 23. Romans chapter six. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the of to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness i am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things which you are now, uh, which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So don't act like an unbeliever. Christ has freed you from your former slavery. You're under no obligation to sin. Christ has set you free. And this brings us to the third way that we can maintain purity, which we'll find in verse 6a in our text today in 1 Thessalonians. Verse 6a says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. The idea here is that of defrauding or stepping over the line in such a way that causes another believer to stumble. The word brother here is probably being used in more of a general sense referring to other Christians. 
Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church, which no doubt consists of married and unmarried Christians, both male and female. So he probably uses brother generally rather than specifically. But we must remember that this is in the context of sexual immorality. So the point being made in verse 6a is that no one should wrong, take advantage of, or cause another believer to sin in matters of sexual immorality. And we can find some scriptural clarity for this idea in Matthew chapter 18, verses six through seven. It says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for the temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptations come. Also, Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So, the ways in which we maintain purity and persevere in it are by exercising self-control, not acting like unbelievers, and not causing other believers to sin. Those are your three ways. And look, these ideas shouldn't seem like anything new to you. The first two involve the believer's vertical relationship, and the third involves the believer's horizontal relationships. The two great commandments, yes? Amen. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And with that, let's move on to our third point today. The warnings for ignoring sexual purity, which we'll see in verses 6b through eight. So let's go ahead and read them, read them again in 1 Thessalonians. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So let's look at verse 6b, where we'll see the first warning, God will punish sexual immorality. Now recall what I read earlier in Hebrews 13, 4, which says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So just from that verse, we see that God judges the sexually immoral and adulterous. We know that. God judges all sinners. But the context of our scripture today is the church. Okay, those who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, believers. So what would God's judgment look like for, for those who are God's children? Well, it may be in the form of loss of friends or family in their lives. It may look like church discipline. It may be divorce, which is supported in the case of adultery, Matthew chapter five, verse 32 and 19, nine. It may be the loss of some heavenly reward. And there are many other ways that God could carry out judgment on his children. But I think, here the warning serves as a reminder both to the offender and to the offended believer involved in sexual immorality. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 reminds us, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then there's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. So this is a reminder for the believer that God will punish his or her sexual immorality and not to seek his own revenge if he or she has been wronged by sexual immorality. And the end of verse 6b says, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And once again, as Paul has a number of times so far in this letter that we call 1 Thessalonians, he's reminding of the church of when he was present with them. He did a thorough job of teaching them and he's reminding them that he taught them this very thing while he was present. They should already know this. This is a reminder. And this is the first warning that God punishes sexual immorality. So let's move to verse seven now, where we'll see the second warning. And the second warning is to guard ourselves against sexual immorality. So verse seven, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now this is a reminder to the Thessalonians and to, indeed to all of us that the call to salvation is also a call to holy living. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through 10. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So created for good works that we should walk in them. In other words, that we should be holy. Second Peter Chapter three, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, and these being the new heavens and the new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So be diligent to be found being holy. One more. Ephesians chapter five, verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So without spot or wrinkle, blameless, holy. The church is Christ's bride. As members of the church, you are a member of, of the body of Christ's bride. So beloved, are you a spot or a wrinkle upon the bride? If you are, you need to start making changes today. Right now, don't wait on it. So the second warning is to be on guard against sexual immorality. So now let's move to verse eight, which gives us the third warning. Sexual immorality is willful disobedience toward God. Verse eight says, therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now the word disregard or disregards, used twice in this verse, means to reject, nullify, cancel, or annul. Now, this verse begins with therefore, which is pointing us back to verse seven. So we understand this verse to be saying, whoever rejects God's call for us not to live in impurity, but in holiness, rejects not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to us. So what Paul is doing here is he's emphasizing, um, he's emphasizing the seriousness of the disobedience involved in sexual immorality. He's reminding them that God's very spirit dwells within them and that through sexual immorality, they defile the dwelling place of God's spirit. 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Brothers, sisters, just like everything you have, it's not yours. It belongs to God. And such is the truth of your body as well. Paul sees the need for the Thessalonians to see how serious this matter of sexual immorality is and to further help you understand how serious this matter of sexual immorality is. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Turn with me to Psalm 51. And I want us to read this one together. And as we read it, I want you to feel the weightiness that David feels from committing adultery with Bathsheba. Pay attention to the language that David uses to convey the seriousness of his disobedience to God. So Psalm 51 to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So did David's lament give you a sense of the weight and the burden of his sexual immorality, this weight that was placed on him. I think verses 16 and 17 really illustrate the severity of sexual immorality. 
Now, this shouldn't cause you to go through and itemize your sins and start analyzing them in terms of how severe they are. But the point here is that you would understand that sexual immorality is something that you should take seriously because God takes it very seriously. Now, as we close, I wanna offer you some encouragement. Maybe your life is currently plagued by or even defined by frequent sexual immorality. Maybe maintaining purity is something with which you struggle. You can find rest for these burdens in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus, one thing you need to know is that you are a sinner. And the wages of your sin, whether it's sexual immorality or any other sin, is death in the form of eternal punishment through God's wrath and hell. But there is good news. There's very good news. God sent his Christ to be crucified, died, and rise on the third day after his death. Jesus Christ suffered the wrath that sin has earned, that you would be saved and reconciled to God. Believe in him. Turn from your sin and repent that this forgiveness would be yours and you would inherit eternal life. And if you belong to Christ, you're no longer a slave to the sin that you once served. Turn from your sexual sin. Agree with God that it is sin and flee from it. Flee from it to the praise and glory of his name. So I want to leave you today with a reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go there with me. I want you to see it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All, these, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us, us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let us pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that has been revealed in your word. We pray, Father, that you will use it to work in our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you will use it to transform us. Lord, we pray for all of us, especially those who may be facing sexual immorality today. We pray that you would keep us from it. You pray, we pray that you would give us the strength to turn from it, Lord. To realize that through your Christ, we have been set free from this sin and indeed all sins. We pray, Lord, that we would glorify you in our th thoughts, in our actions, and with our bodies. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.